One of the things that I always say to folks is always take that meeting, always build those relationships, have that coffee, talk about what you're, what's going on in your life, because I'm an example of how years later that led to an opportunity for me from your standpoint, and you just never know. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Mega Tolia is president and COO of Shondaland, the television production company founded by the one, the only, the genius showrunner and storyteller, Shonda Rhimes. You know, she created Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, Bridgerton, Inventing Anna, those shows, you may have heard of them. Mega began her career as a brand manager for Neutrogena, spending the last 20 years building and operating mission-driven, consumer-centric, innovative brands. Prior to Shondaland, Mega spent eight years managing several businesses for SC Johnson, including Method, eCover, Mrs. Myers, and Baby Gannix. Look, Mega is not only a blast to chat with, The girl can handle a dance-off like no other. And trust me, I don't give that credit to just anyone. I hope you guys enjoy my interview with Mega Tolia. We obviously met through mutual friends, and we are kind of both new-ish to Dallas. And I still feel like we need to finish our Dallas conversations How honestly has it been for you here? I know you're liking it, but you're Californian. My husband is too. You guys have your, we love California things. How has it been? So we're, we've just completed two full years here. And I would say, I think about them in sort of the one year chunks. The first year was challenging. It was a lot of change for us. We had actually moved from Italy to Dallas. So originally from California, spent a lot of time in San Francisco, about 11 years, and then moved to Florence, Italy. And so when we moved to Dallas, we moved primarily for family. Our My mother-in-law and father-in-law are here, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, and then their two kids. And so it was the easy choice for us coming out of COVID because San Francisco had started to go downhill. My husband and I weren't tethered to any job there in a physical sense. And so we were excited to take on a new adventure. And a lot of that planning happened when we were abroad. So Dallas was sort of this figurative thing in our minds, and we didn't really think through the physical transition. And so I would say the first year we get here, it's like everyone knows, it's hot in August. And even though you were told it's so hot, you just can't fathom how the heat affects your mental state come like end of September. So there was just the heat, the newness. We didn't have any infrastructure. So in the beginning, you know, I would say it was less about Dallas and it was more about just a big transition and coming back into America, but not going to our home city. And so that was really challenging. And then just kind of getting set up. And then obviously culturally, it felt a little different. So we would miss the, you take advantage of sort of for granted, I should say, the sort of landscape of California. And we had that in Italy as well. And that started to sort of bleed into our hearts a little bit, missing some of that, the water. I always joke that when I first moved to Dallas, 
folks would say, okay, go north, south, east, west. And the only way I was able to do that in California is because I always marked the water on my west side as the west. And that's what they did in the old days. This is like old school GPS. For me, when someone's like, meet us at the northwest corner of Preston, I'm like, wait, what? What? So it was almost like those little things. But then, yeah, I would say culturally, it was, it just felt different. And I would say different, not in the beginning, not better, not worse, just different. And so that was, it just took a lot of getting used to sort of how folks interact. Um, I love this about Dallas, but so much is about, there's a lot more in-person feel, I feel here. And I love that sense of community. And obviously there's a lot of passion around sports. So just getting used to that for my kids in a different way was, we've had that in Italy with soccer. Our kids were young in San Francisco, so we hadn't really gotten into the sports scene, but there's just a lot of that. So getting used to sort of the parent dynamic and involvement with sports was a a transition. So that was sort of the first year and we were living in limbo. We weren't in our house. We were blessed and lucky enough to build our own home and we moved into our own home in the second year. And that is when I would say we started to feel a sense of home and grounding. And again, I think a large part is just due to us moving around for so long. So this last year has been great. You know, when you move to a city older, I would say, you know, going back to that first year again, it's just hard. It's hard to make friends when both of us are, my husband's north of 50, I'm north of 40. We wanted it to be in an organic, authentic way. And that just takes time. And so all of that we were feeling in the first year. Second year, moved into a house. Our kids are now at the school. They go to St. Mark's School of Texas. They're settled there. And we just started to see ourselves in the community and make friends. And that has really been stabilizing for us and helping us start to feel like we have some roots. I would say this year, I've really enjoyed getting to know Dallas. And when I say sort of culturally different, the parts that are that shine for me that I love here is everyone is so kind and welcoming and warm in a way that feels very different than the kindness we've experienced in California. I feel like that it takes a village is very true here. I can call a friend to pick up my kids. Folks see my kids riding down the street and will call us and say, we saw your son. Just this very, almost like a small town feel where we live. And I, and I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Texas love, my friend. It's, it's a real thing. Hey, look, so, you know, I grew up in Houston and left for a long time, but even for me, kind of like you guys, we were abroad for five years and one, the idea of moving back to the U.S. was weird after five years. You're just like, whoa, we were so, we're international. Let's go to, you know, feet, let's go to like the Maldives this week, like whatever, you know how it is. Our first move back here was my first stint in Dallas. And so even growing up in Texas, Even to me, Dallas was a different culture than even Houston, right? It's it's a very unique culture here. And like you, I we moved around a lot. So I do it by year by year as well. It's like that first year, second year. So I'm in my second year, second time around in Dallas. And now, same as you, kind of feel like, okay, even though I'm from here, like and I know people and I went to UT, it's still like settling in in your 40s, making friends or reconnecting with friends. It's a whole process for sure. And there are many nights I like to stay home and And just not, you know, but welcome to Texas officially. And so the reason uh, you guys moved, I I wasn't sure. And I was, you know, I researched you, even though we're friends. I know you began your career as a brand manager for Neutrogena and then 20 years building innovative brands. 
CPG, right? You were working always with CPG, always yes. CPG, just, goods. right? Just like just like the hubby. So totally understand your background, basically. And now you are leading one of the world's largest media agencies. That's a big shift, right? That's a big shift in culture, a big shift in thinking, uh, a, a shift in kind of the way you approach things. I would assume. So tell me about that shift. And kind of the learning curve. Well, what I would say is it was a steep learning curve for sure. But, you know, when I had lived in Italy, I had stopped working in the traditional sense and worked on personal growth in Italy. So I went to school and studied the language and became fluent in Italian. And that was sort of that chapter. When we moved back to the U.S., I said to myself, if I'm going to kind of get back in the arena, put the jersey back on, I wanted to feel a bit nervous. And like I was almost playing a new game. So when this opportunity came to me, and I'm so lucky that it did because it is definitely a different industry. I obviously thought twice and said, how am I going to go from consumer packaged goods, a focus that initially started with brand management, moved to general management? How am I going to be effective in the entertainment industry? Before you even talk about that, if you don't mind... How did the opportunity arise? Were you looking for something like this? Was this media was the media landscape in your mind? Being from LA, I have always loved and been passionate about the media and entertainment industry. So it was sort of me more the love is, is from a consumer side and a consumption side. So that in terms of the industry was always something I've kept my eye on, even though I had never worked in it except for one stint as an internship at, at Disney, which I loved. And so when I moved back to the U.S., I wasn't looking for an opportunity right away because we were going through a big transition moving from Italy to Dallas. But a friend of mine that I had remained in touch with over the years happens to be Shonda Rhimes' agent. And he and I were at a conference together that we both attend every year. It's called the Allen & Company Conference in Sun Valley, Idaho. And we got to talking and he said, hey, what are you up to? I know you guys have just moved back from Italy And he talked to me about really an interesting opportunity that he saw with his clients. And what he had talked about was that many of these celebrities or public figures are now in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, really interested in building their brand in a different way and building businesses that surround sort of what they're passionate about. But oftentimes, given they're in the entertainment industry and either they're actors or writers, or they don't always have the experience and what it takes to sort of build a brand or build a team around a central figure to grow a business and scale a business in the traditional sense. And so the opportunity first was brought to me in terms of sort of maybe helping some of his clients. And then as we got to talking, he said to me, you know, I have someone particular in mind. And he mentioned Shonda Rhimes. And I literally- Someone you may have heard of. Right. I I (laughs) fell out of my chair. Luckily, it was a phone call. And so, you know, he didn't see me do that, nor did Shonda. Yeah. Um, I thought to myself, wow, I respect this person so much that the thought of Chris thinking about me even meeting her and potentially being a partner to her was such an honor. And so it really did fall into my lap in that way. And I'm so grateful. But one of the things that I always say to folks is always take that meeting, always build those relationships, have that coffee, talk about what you're, what's going on in your life. Because I'm an example of 
how years later that led to an opportunity for me from a career standpoint. And you just never know because five years earlier, Chris and I had known each other very well as well. And I was just in a very different place. And so, you know, I always talk about where luck meets opportunity. That is, is this, this opportunity for me. And I thank Chris Silverman for that. And obviously Shonda for taking a chance on me. And there was a lot of luck in that. And so that's how the opportunity came about. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, so go back to the transitioning into the media landscape from, you know, 20 years of CPG stuff, right? So I started to think, okay, if I'm going to put the jersey back on, I've got to feel a little bit nervous about what I'm doing so that I have that fire in my belly. And the learning curve was steep. For the obvious reasons, it's entertainment industry versus consumer packaged goods. It's a team that is incredibly creative, although I've worked with many creative people before. The way in which they bring projects to life is just very different than it is in the consumer packaged goods world. So a lot of learning around vernacular, the product. But what I came to realize pretty quickly in my first four to six weeks, and I say this a lot in personal life. I say we all live the same lives, just different houses. When we have children, it's the same chaos in just different houses. I feel largely that companies are pretty similar. I, I started to gain more confidence in my ability to assess the situation once I got in and saw that, yes, there might be different terms for things. Yes, instead of a physical product being you know, a face wash or soap, the product itself is the show that we're building or the story that we're telling. So it's just a different widget, but it is it is a product in and of itself. And the innovation process, the creative process, the you know, they we call it sort of, you know, page to screen, but in our packaged goods day it would be sort of idea to shelf. There were a lot of similarities. And so I started to rest on what I knew and just looked for parallels inside the company and the industry that I could draw from. And Initially, there were challenges for me, you know, wanting to make sure I was building rapport with the team. You know, I felt like I was coming into this this company after the COVID lockdowns, but still everyone was fairly remote. This is two years ago. So I thought to myself, how am I going to come in and help lead this team remotely? I'm working out of Dallas. The team is largely based out of LA, although we were all working from home. And I'm such a people person and I love to connect with people in person that I was cognizant of the fact that I wasn't going to have that at my fingertips. So relying on obviously video connection and phone calls and Zooms, I would say it took a little longer than it probably could have if I was in person. But I just focused on listening and asking a lot of questions. The team to this day, they're smarter, more creative. They can do what they do best. I just bring a different skill set. And so in the beginning, I really wanted to be a listener and a learner to learn from the team and to understand how everything works so that I could start to apply those parallels and those analogies that I had from my previous life. And so that was what I did the first 90 days is really listen and learn while trying to create some infrastructure internally. But the company was run very creatively. I mean, things just sort of happen and they happen quickly and they're brilliant. And sort of I come in and I'm starting to look at where can we put in some plumbing so that if certain team members who harness a lot of knowledge and have been around Sean and the team for years, if for some reason they move on or different opportunities come their way, how do we put plumbing in place so that things can scale? There is some sort of stability in the process and predictability, yet allowing for obviously a lot of room for creativity and, right. and innovation. Right. I wonder, are you the first leader 
in the group and on your team to be sort of from outside the industry? Yes. And then also, like you said, you're remote. So if I were on Shonda's side of things, I'd be like, who is this? 100%. 100%. Right? I mean, just because like for them, they're like, you have, you don't roll with us, homie. Like, right. Yes. I think there was a lot of sort of maybe on the back foot. I mean, right. the team is so Under, understandably, by the way, like, and I knew that walking in, hence me sort of focusing on just the team Listen, getting yeah, me right, and right. my background and less about me coming in. But I had this vision of them. And it would be interesting to, to talk to the executive team or the folks that, but I, I feel like they envisioned me as this person in a suit. Like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. I mean, Harvard, Harvard Business School, blah, blah, business blah, blah. school with yeah. PowerPoint decks. And I do <laughs> yeah. do PowerPoint decks. And I think the team laughs and think that they're still way too much. Oh my gosh, you guys, all you HBSers and PowerPoint decks. We do love, we do love a good two by two. <laughs> you guys, right. you and Barth can have happy hour and just build PowerPoint decks together. That's what that, we'll do. That's that would, our version of fun. Don't he, would be, he would be so excited to have like a, a PowerPoint deck off. <laughs> We'll probably do that at our next dinner date. We'll just sort of put in all the restaurants that we have on the on the docket of our choices to where to eat, and we'll put a framework around. I, you know what? Me and Nira will we'll give you guys one topic and say go. One hundred percent. You all will bring the fun. <laughs> so oh my gosh, I, I love it. Yeah. That vision of me. Yeah, and, of course. And I at least envisioned that they had that vision of me, and so I was nervous. Yeah. You know? and, and I do think, or I hope, that once they got to know me, they saw that there is this informality to me. And I, I gained a lot of that empathy and learning how to be not as formal. I would say in my method days where I went to a company that was smaller, even though it was consumer packaged goods, it was founder-led, mission-based. So a lot of that didn't feel new to me going into Shondaland, actually. Had I come from Johnson & Johnson, where it was very formal, I always had to know my numbers. I presented in a very certain way. I think that would have been too stark of a transition. I got a lot of that feedback from the team at Method and worked on my leadership style and how I worked with the team during that tenure. And I think that really helped me going into Shondaland. And maybe even your time in Italy, I don't want to say you took time off, but your, your time there with the family tapping into a different part of your brain and your mind and your heart probably was also part of all of it. Absolutely. Such a great point. Just being in a place where every corner that we passed, there was some deep history. I was inspired every day by, by living in a place where the Renaissance took place. It fueled and played to my heart 100%. The creativity in another, whatever other way, other avenue, right? Well, so it was like kind of, it's in a weird way, this natural transition into this team, right? No, I love that. So Shondaland, we all know it, right? Obviously, God, I can't even, Grey's Anatomy, Bridgerton, inventing, is it Anna or Anna? I still don't inventing know which one Anna. it is. Anna, okay. Every single person has binged these shows. I don't care who you are, and Barth will even admit he has to. You just do. <laughs> you have to. You just have yeah. to. And if you haven't, what is wrong with you people? Also, yeah, seriously, like you're not truly American if you haven't, or just a human being. Two questions, just out of curiosity. What shows are your favorites? I'm sure all of them are. And then two, your highlights the past few years working at Shondaland. What are you proud of? What projects have you been able to work on hands-on? My favorite show aside from Grey's Anatomy, which I feel like is just a staple. That is, for many of us, the show that we grew up with. And there's so many moments of relatability in there. That 
is probably the the bread and butter of my iconics that I love. Yeah. And and getting to meet the cast was a true was a true okay. highlight and just such a privilege and an that honor. show should be like on the History Channel in the future. Absolutely. <laughs> It probably will be at some point. Yeah. If you want to know Um, how America was or the U.S. was during these years, go ahead. A a testament to the team and the the team that writes for that show. I mean, two decades is is no joke. So that is is definitely a favorite. But I have to say, Bridgerton season one, for me, was just transposed me into a world and enabled my mind to open up in a way that I am forever grateful. I obviously getting to look at reggae on screen is, is, you know, was not a bad thing. Um, but just, it was so brilliantly, obviously I'm biased, but so brilliantly written and brought to life. But all of the under, the stories that were sort of under the surface, I think left me thinking even after I watched the show. And then culturally and societally, what Shonda Land and the team at Shonda Land and obviously Shonda Rhimes on a personal and professional level continues to do, which is to push us forward as a society and to think about the way in which we interact with each other differently and in sort of a normative way that, you know, we sort of joke internally, people will say to us, you all are so inclusive. And obviously in a world where DEIA is front and center, of course we we are and we strive to be, but we we look at each other and Shondola says this, that it's not something we strive to be. It's sort of just how we view the world. It's not sort of this value that we're just trying to get go after or check the box. It's sort of, sure, if you want to say we're inclusive, I, I guess. But it is it is just how we are. It is part of our DNA. And you can tell. So like the DEI thing, what is great, and I know everyone's trying and doing, but I think with you guys and, and through your stories and shows, sure, it's inclusive, lack of a better term, but it shows that it's your DNA because it's not... Like in your face, you know, it's just is, you know, it just seems like a natural part of the story, right? Where you could tell that just, this was just naturally like, oh, we don't, we have to check this box kind of thing. That's right. And that's how it is every day when we work with each other. We sort of challenge each other on the way we think we, and, and that is just the, our operating principles. And you asked sort of what in the last two years am I most proud of or any fun, pro- like a project that you. Aside from the team not thinking I'm just this person in a suit that's robotic. Oh, by the way, team, if you're listening, she's not. She can break it down dancing-wise. I don't know if you guys have seen her. Exactly. So we'll talk about that later, we'll but go ahead. Later. That's part two. Um, aside of, of demystifying sort of this business person that, that's uh-huh. coming in. No, I'm kidding. I hope that that is true. I would say the thing that I'm most proud of is, is really doing sort of what I was tasked to do, which is putting some plumbing in and providing some process and structure into the company in a seamless way. If I look back over the two years, I think we have done a really nice job of that as a team. So when I started, we would say there was an opportunity for us to sort of play off of one sheet of music. The individual departments and the teams, they're moving 90,000 miles per minute, achieving great things. But this notion of having somebody come in and look at it sort of at the 100,000 foot level to say, how do we bring some synergy, not to change the passion and the deliverables of what these teams are doing, but just to make sure they were synchronous. And so we came in and took a look at what the team was doing and wrote wrote a strategic plan, which was like another want, want word, but really just... 
Tell me something else you love. I know. This is what I love in a most proud of team. I'm like, I feel like I'm talking to my husband right now. I know. I know. You guys are just brother and sister. It's fine. No, it's great. That's what you're hired for. That's what they wanted you for. At first, I felt like we were moving a little slower than I had wanted to. But as I reflect back over the last two years, I think that is that piece culturally that I needed to get used to. Like putting metrics, you know, I built a scorecard and in full transparency, put the scorecard out there. We took our goals. We started talking about them every month. I felt like it was falling a little flat. We didn't have always these quantitative metrics. And so what I've been able to do is I sort of pulled that off the table and said, we're not ready for it, but did showcase the importance of writing out goals, making sure we're sort of all aligned to them, having a good thermometer check of, are we meeting them? Are we red, green, yellow? Not as a set, not as a way to be tough on ourselves or to be punitive, but to hold ourselves accountable. So introducing this true sense of accountability beyond sort of the shows themselves, the organization, we, we are in audio. We have, we tell stories on our website. We build consumer products. There's so many things that we do as, as an organization to round out the stories in which we tell that we tell that I wanted sort of us to come in and really understand how do those things play together and make sure that as we brought in new employees into the company, they understood sort of what the Shondaland vision, mission, brand values really are, as opposed to sort of the core group of folks that have been around for 20 years, disseminating that information. And so I would say we've made a lot of progress on that. I'm very proud of that. And we still have a long way to go. The other thing that I am most excited about is a focus on the sense of of team and the employees and their career development and succession planning. I mean, the team moved so quickly that it wasn't that it wasn't happening. It just, we had an opportunity to do it in a more formalized, structured way. And again, this is something that I think the company can keep doing as we build, we grow, we build a new employees, but a formal way to give feedback I truly believe that feedback is a gift, no matter what role, position, industry you're in. And that took a little bit of discussion because the team wasn't used to that saying, so, you know, how do we give feedback? Really getting folks to understand that it is all in the spirit of helping each and every one of us grow and be our best selves with the team and even through individual contribution. You said grow many times. I'm just curious. How has the team grown or how much has it grown and and how many people do you guys have? We are now just south of 60 people. And I would say, you know, in in the two years that I have been there, we've probably grown from mid 40s to just south of 60. But, you know, we're at this place now and obviously getting through the pandemic where our focus was really more on less around growing the number of people, but continue to grow the number of projects focusing on efficiency and kind of making sure we're being mindful of that. But we are a decent-sized team that takes a lot. That is. That is. And I think, you know, hearing – I had an idea of what you, what you were doing there, but hearing you speak about it now, it feels like to me, obviously, you you were asked to be part of the team for, for this reason, for the plumbing reasons, and not to be the suit, right, per se, but just to make sure really at the end of the day that this team, this creativity, this media magnet – they can continue to do that is what is basically what you're there for. I want to continue this creativity in a healthy way. Not stop it, not change it, nothing like that. It's I want to make sure it keep we keep rolling. That's right. And that as we grow and we move quickly, our foundation is strong and everyone understands it. Right, right. Totally. After they see you dance, 
They're going to know. You have not seen me dance yet. They're going to know. I have the video, but I will not share it. (laughs) I mean, it was good. It was both me and you, so we would both go down, but we won't share it. Yes, we would both go down. Shonda, I know you've worked with many people throughout your life that have done amazing things, but someone like her, her who is perhaps just another level of human. I don't even know. She is. How is it working so closely to someone like that? Because not very many of us get that chance. Like, what have you learned from her? Oh, what don't I learn? She is incredibly inspiring. I mean, I know that almost seems like the obvious word, but even in a one-on-one, the way she asks questions or challenges the team, the thing that I love about her and being around her is I don't think I've ever been around someone who thinks as big as she does. Like there is no end to her vision. So usually when we're working on something, her question to us is sort of, how do we think bigger? How do we make it bigger? And what I love about her is that even though we have agreed upon something or we're down a certain path and the wheels are in motion, she's constantly thinking about how to make it better and bigger. And even if we are down a path, if she thinks about it again and wants to make a change, obviously she has that courage, the vision, the bravery to say, we're going to stop here and we're going to reboot. And I know there's been a lot of great work and many entrepreneurs are like this. And that is something I, I respect of all entrepreneurs of just kind of being comfortable with that change and that no product is ever fully done. And even though it's your own work or the team's work, being very open to sort of the critical thinking around the work to make sure that it's best for who the consumers are, in our case, the audiences. She is just incredible at that. I've also been very impressed at her ability to, as I just mentioned, think so big, yet have this incredible breadth of interests, knowledge, and expertise. She is an avid reader and a learner. And she can talk business and she'll say, oh, I don't understand this word or this thing. And I just sort of joke because I say you do. And, but even if I explain to her the vernacular or the acronym right away, I mean, she, you can talk shop with her on almost any topic. And I really respect that because I know I can't do that. I know that many people can't do that, but she has a, a, she has a superpower for sure. I feel like leaders, true leaders must be constant students. They must be constantly learning. If someone thinks they have reached a point where they know everything, that's where, they, that, that's where they're stunted. Absolutely. I really don't know how she does it all. I mean, she's an incredible mother, so attentive to her three beautiful girls, pushes us on the business side, thinks about things. You know, she's got her personal foundation. She's doing so much and always seems calm, cool, and collected. Yeah. I heard her speaking on my, my favorite podcast, Armchair Expert. I've heard a few interviews and obviously it's an interview, but it just seems to me she's just so humble. Like, I don't know. It's not an act. She's humble. She's hardworking. She doesn't take any shortcuts. I think sometimes people think that someone like Shonda Rhimes or anyone that's achieved greatness, you know, you can oftentimes look at all the glory moments, but there are so many hard ones along the way. And there are no shortcuts. There are just no shortcuts. And she definitely is is a testament to that for sure. Yeah. It's interesting listening to her interview and remembering obviously Sean DeLand, but how much he has done before that even. Like, you know, everyone looks at that. Of course, amazing, great achievement. She's the GOAT. 
but it started long before that. Yeah, there were a lot of failures before that. There are a lot, that's how that's how we all grow. And and I think she always remembers that. And she's very much a people first person. That's um, amazing. That soak, I, soak all the Shonda in and then pass it to us, please. Yes, we, absolutely. We would love that. Oh, if I could get into her brain. Do a Shonda session on our on our DD. Curiosity, last question about Shondaland. What would you personally like to see be done, accomplished, projects at Shondaland that you guys haven't touched before? Is there anything in your mind creatively? Like, I know you're a COO and president and, and you're, you're doing the plumbing and all that, but. Yes. Are you asking me a creative question? Yes, like, I am. I am. Is there anything? My head on a platter. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, is there anything you could talk about in 2024 that you guys are doing? Or yeah, if you were directing a show for Shondaland, what would it be? <laughs> oh, team, if you're listening, let's get real here. I mean, it has to be a Bollywood dance thing. Okay. Obviously. Obviously. I would like to Obviously. be cast. I told them I just missed season two Bridgerton when they cast South Asian leads. I was very disappointed that I was overlooked for the part, you and me both. But I know. We'll let that. Can we do tryouts next year for like an auntie role or something? I'll do it. Absolutely. So we'll make that happen. No, I think, you know, we're storytellers. And we have told so many amazing stories to date. I would love to see us continue to push the envelope, even in different ways, like different genres. One of the things we talk a lot about internally is getting into the working mother and the mindset and telling her story, whether it be through a show, a podcast, an article. And that is something I would love to see us tackle in the Shondaland way and tell that, tell a story that I know so many of us and even if you're not a mother per se, but just having other priorities and other people to look after in life can relate to, I think that we can do a really great job. That would be very powerful and fun. And yes, and just uplifting and motivating and inspiring. What we need, what women need. What women need, because we're all about community and being seen. Like we always talk about a window and a mirror. So you can sort of see yourself in the reflection, but you can also see through to others. And that story around the working mom and the complexity of life. I think Shonda Land, the team, can put an amazing spin on that. And so if you guys need like a chaiwala for that for if you get for that show, let me know. I can make a mean chai. Write that into the 2024 (laughs) (laughs) Write write that into your people planning. Ami Tucker Chaiwala. We're never gonna let Mega talk to Ami again. (laughs) Ami Tucker is canceled. It's fine. I love you, Shonda. A little brag about you guys. I know you'll never mention it, but I just read, and maybe this is after we met up, but I just read that you and your hubby are now co-founding directors of the William S. Spears Institute for Entrepreneurial Leadership and SMU's Cox School of Business. That's right. That okay? Hi. <laughs> Hi. I know I didn't tell you. So I know you. I was like, wait, we drank twice. I don't understand. <laughs> of course you haven't, because we were talking about women problems. Right. Right. Congrats. Thank you. Thank and you. are you okay to talk a little bit about it? Yes. Tell me. We tell me. are so excited to and honored and humbled to be asked to to help lead this institute. Huge credit to Dr. Spears for giving this gift to the Cox School of Business and really inspiring sort of our future leaders, our future business leaders. You know, entrepreneurship is something that both my husband and I are very, very passionate about. My husband, for obvious reason, he is the 
the quintessential entrepreneur, having started three companies in his in his tenure and continued to lead them. And he is incredible in that regard. And so then you ask, like, well, why would Mega be a co-founding director? No, I wouldn't. Of an entrepreneur? <laughs> well, I asked myself that. But what I what I the reason why I feel that we are great compliments to co-lead this is because I'm all about the entrepreneurial mindset. Right. I don't actually think that you have to be somebody that comes up with a business idea, launches a new business to be entrepreneurial. And right. I used to think I that. love I, that. I love that. Thank you. Quick note. I was just talking to a bunch of girlfriends at dinner and everyone's like, do we all have to be founders to mean something, to do something, to have any kind of name anymore? Right. No. <laughs> so the fact that you're, and then I read this article about, about you guys yesterday and I was like, yes, this yes. is amazing. Anyways, that, please well, continue that, on that note. Yes. That is exactly why I say that because I thought that about myself 10 years ago. I used to always say, Nerves the entrepreneur and I'm the mid to large size person who scales business person. And I realized that a lot of what the team and I were able to do over the last 20 years and the big companies that I've worked for, we've been entrepreneurial. We've created businesses inside of businesses. We've arguably, it's so hard to be innovative in a stagnant industry. That is entrepreneurial. I really do believe it's a mindset. And I actually think that we need, we do need both. If we can inspire the youth to be entrepreneurial in their mindset, they can bring that into big companies and create these companies that are long lasting and relevant for the future. They can also start companies at the same time, but we need, we need it in both in order for us to keep the industries that have been around for a while, fresh and new and innovative. And I want us to really talk to the students about that and having that mindset. And then a lot of what we're going to do, of course, is provide the support system, the guidance and the framework for what does it mean to have an entrepreneurial mindset? If you do have questions and, and how do we provide support around physically starting a business? So we'll, we'll do some business plan writing workshops. We'll, we believe in mentorship, really assigning these students with mentors in the community and really just bringing folks together to spur ideas. Because when you're sitting in the same room, what you think might be working on emails, someone may come by your desk and an idea may be born. And so really just bringing that, that notion to the, to the Institute. And we're, we're in the process of formalizing all the tenants of the Institute and how we're going to bring it to life. But we will have speaker series where we bring in inspirational leaders across industries to spur our thinking and to leave us walking out of the room with questions or challenges to ourselves. So we'll have speaker series all the way to one-on-one sessions with the students. And we're just excited about it. That's awesome. This is amazing. And, and then I just thought of an idea that could combine both your worlds. What I would like to see you do is not just work with students, but whenever you guys have a chance, I know you just started. So, you know, not that I'm part of this, but also it'd be awesome if you could do something with working moms, single moms, moms that don't have any support to help them get started, right? Something, I don't know, some kind of program like that, because you would be so good at that. And then Shonda can make that into a TV show. That's it. God, that is I'm so good. Mind. This is how it comes full circle. 2024. Just saying. Just just throwing it out there. And when Shonda hears my idea, she's going to hire me for Chaiwala. Yes, you're going to so. replace me and everyone else there. No, no, no. Just want to be a Chaiwala. I, I, PowerPoint presentations. Uh, no, my, trust me, ask Barth. You'd be like, don't hire her at all. No, no, no. I'll just stay on the side and I can DJ. I'll DJ all day. I'll DJ. 
<laughs> you know, I went to DJ school in India. It was called uh, Spin Gurus, and I got a certificate. When we moved there, I had no job. So I was like, well, I don't want to be a lawyer. So, and Barth was gone all day, all night with Pepsi. So I was like, I'm going to be a D. Either I had to get a tattoo or get a, be a DJ. Cause I was like, I'm 31 living in India and I'm a housewife. That is incredible though. To fuck? teach yourself that skill. Not no, I didn't teach. I went to school. I but went to I mean, the school. But, but like you learned, you were a learner. Well, I had to, I was like, or I'm going to like die here as a housewife in India. Like what's happening to my life? So then basically the best part of it is Barth has his HBS and Stanford degree in his office in India. And so I put my DJ certificate <laughs> right, in, in the middle. right in the middle. And I was like, I love it. what's up? And Barth was like, what the, I was like, trust me, this you was hard. You get a really big frame that just overpowers the other two and then move them. Don't make sure they're not laterally. Like make sure that yeah. those two are slightly below. Slightly your lower. Level. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I'm just saying it's, it's a yeah. powerful degree. He just, so he just needs to accept the truth. <laughs> oh, he, he's let go of everything now. I was like, just let me win now. It's fine. I want to know. So I knew you, you grew up in LA. I obviously know you love dancing because we're going to have another uh, break dance off. And you grew up also dancing, right? Like classical. Was it Bharatanatyam? What were you doing? Actually, I didn't grow up trained. I just sort of imitated and followed my cousins around who did do classical Bharatanatyam. Unfortunately, the teacher, I can't really remember the story, but I think the teacher that was sort of near us because LA is so spread out, wasn't really that close. And my parents being, you know, parents of three children sort of rightfully so made us prioritize and choose. And I always had a passion and I wanted to do birth that team, but I think we couldn't make it work with the schedule. But my cousins who I'm very close to there, they are my three other sisters they grew up doing Bharatanatyam and we spent so much time together and I would go to their practices and just watch and watch and watch and copy. So I'd like to say that I did classically classical dance, but it was really through, you know, just watching. Well, transitive property, I should say. Transitive property. I got to say, I saw you perform and it looks like, it looked like you had been trained. Oh, yeah, so you, should... like you fake it till you make it. No, but I did, yeah, I did it was do, good. It was, I, you did great. I did grow up dancing. I did do ballet and jazz through and spent a lot more of my high school years focused on dance. I spent my early years being exposed to soccer and basketball and all the things only to realize that I was sort of afraid of any ball coming. <laughs> and oh my while I was on the field or the court, whatever sport it was that my parents were so sweetly trying to expose me to, I would sort of be doing a pirouette or not really paying attention. And you know, I wish I was able to get into dance a lot younger, but I appreciate being exposed to everything to really figure out that dance was my passion and my way. It is my passion and musical theater. I did that in high school as well. That, I did not know that about you. I always kind of like to know, before we, we wrap up here, parents' immigration story. Because I know a lot of our parents have kind of the same immigration story to an extent, but it's always interesting to hear from from your side and and what you understood about their immigrant immigration story and then how it was growing up in your house meeting. Were they super Indian and strict and were you surrounded by South Asian culture and friends? It's a great question. I, I will say, isn't it funny how all of our parents somehow walked six miles in the snow and came with like seven, right, right, came, came and I'm like, does it even snow in Bombay? I don't think so. And they all came with sort of the same like 99 to $100 in their pocket. No, I'm kidding. There is a similar story to your point, but everyone is so filled. Every story is filled with richness. 
and is unique. And my parents is certainly that way. I could well up when I think about their immigration story and I just couldn't be more grateful for them to pave this beautiful life for us. I really do owe everything to my parents and the siblings of my dad who sort of paved the way for them. So our story actually starts with my uncle, who is my dad's brother. My dad is the youngest of eight children, eight. There were four boys and four girls. And my dad is the baby boy number eight. Your poor grandmother. <laughs> I, know, I know. Poor daddy. Poor daddy. Always poor daddy. Poor Seriously. Daddy. And it's important to share that because because there were eight of them, they were a unit. I mean, it is always about the eight of them and their relationship that spans over 25 years. So my dad's eldest sister, who we call Faiba, which means dad's sister, was 16 years older than them. Unfortunately, they had lost their two older brothers very early in life. And so the sister was really like a mother to my to my father. But my uncle, so there were really, for the longest time, there were six because the two older brothers had passed away. So the four sisters were there and then my dad and his brother. And so they were very, very close. So my uncle came to the US in the early 60s, it might've been the late 50s, to pursue a degree. And he landed in Utah and then he pursued a master's degree in Montana. And that is where he met his bride and my beautiful aunt, Auntie Karen. So you have to imagine it's the early 60s. He meets Auntie Karen. Auntie Karen is an only child in a small town in Montana, and she meets this Indian guy. Yeah. Auntie Karen is probably the only Indian guy there. Literally. (laughs) She is white with very sweet parents, small family, making their own dresses and and just living a very simple life. And in comes Naveen Trivedi. (laughs) who somehow sweeps her away. If you look That's at the pictures, we, it's He was like, I had charm. Why are you questioning Look me? at the pictures. I'm like, Auntie Karen, you are a servant and you are so charitable. No, we're joking. We, she fell, they fell in love. And, you know, at the time, my grandfather sent my uncle to America saying, hey, listen, you can be the first one to go get your degree. But if any of your siblings want to come, this is, it is your responsibility to bring anyone who wants to come over. And he did. And when he met my auntie Karen, that's why we give her so much credit because they did it together. And she came from a very small family and opened up her heart and their home and brought over whoever wanted to come, nieces and nephews. My dad was one of them, two of my other aunts. And at every, at some point in, and they were just newly married and they were, and we are young parents. I mean, having young kids at home and there was family staying with them. And I give, so, you know, you'd ask your question of where my parents, was it a traditional household? I have to say, because of Auntie Karen, we assimilated into America, I would say very differently than many other Indian immigrants because my aunt was white. And you know, we joke, we had these huge Thanksgivings and Christmases. Everyone says, do you celebrate Christmas? I'm like, yeah, we're than probably most Christians, but we are And because Auntie Karen just showed us all of these traditions and she helped our family go through those, those difficult things that you go through when you move to another country. Like my, my father didn't eat meat and she, but she would make meat in the house and kind of helped coach him to understand like, Hey, these are the choices that you're going to see when you go to school. And this is what this meat means. And not that you have to eat meat, but introduced him to it in a way that, you know, he made him feel comfortable making those choices and just really gave everyone a soft landing. And so My parents' immigration story really starts with my uncle and my aunt. And then my dad, my father came here in 1967. He got a PhD from the University of Southern California. 
So obviously at some point, my aunt and uncle moved from Montana to California. And that is where our family in Los Angeles has been. And my father lived with his brother, got his PhD in electrical engineering, and he and his brother worked together at the same company. We lived four houses down from each other. So I grew up with my aunt and uncle as my second set of parents. Their two daughters are also like my sister's. And having her show us the way she was incredibly crafty. She made amazing pies from scratch and cookies and all the things. Um, I feel like our upbringing was... A perfect blend, really. A blend. Yes. We had the amazing traditional Indian values because my father then went on to marry my mom, who was from Delhi. And my mom moved here after meeting my parent, my father. They met and married in one month. It was sort of arranged in the sense that they were sort of arranged to meet each other, but it was up to them to decide if they wanted to marry each other. My dad extends his sort of holiday vacation and they get married on January 5th, 1975. And that movie, The Namesake, actually rings true for, I think, my mom and tugs on our heartstrings because my mom moved to New Jersey. That's where my dad was working at Bell Labs at the time. And, you know, they had a hard heart, like all of our parents. Yeah. Any immigration story. It's just a hard beginning. Yeah. When you really, really hear it, you're like, it's it's funny that you mentioned the namesake. I feel like it gets to all of us, right? That, that's, that story. You just think of our moms coming here at 95 pounds, but like my mom rolled in the sari. Like the whole thing. I was like, I was 92 pounds. I'm like, it's getting lower and lower each time. Lower and lower. Exactly. Exactly. My parents were in New Jersey for those beginning years of their marriage, but going back to that, that story about family being one of eight or really the six, they were all mostly in California. And so my parents said, what are we doing if we're here in New Jersey? We're about to have our first baby, my older sister. And they made that decision to uproot and move back to Los Angeles because they were all so far away from India that they wanted to keep that family close. And I am so grateful for that because my cousins and I were all very, very close it's the investment that our parents and my uncles and aunts put in their relationship that has led to this huge sense of family and tradition and closeness and sharing of our Indian values. It was always right there. And I think a lot of my appreciation and connection to India, not only going there all the time to see my grandparents, but also is because we were around it all the time. Yeah. You guys kind of built your little mini India. Yeah, it was like a mini right? Indian. Exactly. We had enough with, people. We with Auntie Karen to make sure you can balance it out. Exactly. We have our <laughs> own dumb. Yeah, I, I love it. I am extremely jealous because we, I didn't get to grow up with cousins until in our 20s and our cousins so started coming later, over. Right. So later, right. later. And it's, it's great now, but I, I wish we had that a little bit more. But this is why we had to inundate ourselves into the Hindu temples and mandirs to get that kind of family. Um, so I feel like we should dedicate this episode to Auntie Karen because without her support, Really, like if he didn't marry someone like that, that was willing to do it, right? At the end of the day, he might not have been able to call everyone. Yeah. I don't know. You never they know. Are, and yesterday was their heavenly 60th wedding anniversary. Oh, Auntie Karen, this is for you. Auntie Karen, Anna Vinkaka, this is all for you. And mom That's and amazing. I love it. I love it. I love ugh, parents, man, right? Okay, quick, quick, fast round. First thing you can think of, and then I'll let you go, and then we're planning our date. Okay, yes, perfect. Biggest pet peeve disorganization. Dinner party with anyone dead or alive. Three people. Mahatma Gandhi, Madonna, Abraham Lincoln. I'm coming to that one. Your ultimate dream collaboration for 2024. Mega and Beyonce. Here we come. (laughs) I was for some reason in my head, I'm like, she's going to say Beyonce at some point. I'm not sure why. (laughs) What is your biggest fear? 
losing my parents. If you had to describe Dallas in one word, what would it be? Community. If you weren't doing this job or your CPG job, whatever you've done, alternate reality, what else would you be doing? I'd be a star on Broadway. What is one thing that you want to do in 2024 that you haven't done yet? Ooh, that I haven't done yet. Pickleball. Oh, I love pickleball. <laughs> I really have not played. I just, we you did a family, we, well, we did a family tournament just okay. last week for Thanksgiving Ooh. and I picked up a racket for the first time. I had a lot of fun. So I would love to do that in 2024. I, well, homie, I, I mean, half of Dallas plays it. So apparently, you yes. have your choice. I'm all about getting the cute outfit and looking the part. Um, but no, actually I just, yeah, I mean, as going back to the story about being, me being a dancer, I just, I wasn't always the sporty one. And so I always just sort of say, I'm, those are not my things. And then I got out there and I have to say my nephew and I, we were called the Christmas bandits. We uh-huh. won the tournament. All right. Well, let's go girl. Cause I still love tennis way better, but it's nice. I tried pickleball this year a couple of times and fun. Uh, I, know, I did pretty good at a school tournament, you know, I, oh, injured, yeah, yeah. I I injured someone. Is uh, that another? That's another trophy that you're going to put right, right in between the. Any <laughs> trophy, any trophy I can get. Parts accolades are just going to slightly disappear into the garage. I found my UT senior year. We won the ISA champion, whatever the Indian yeah. Student Association yeah, dance did. thing. I did. I did Ross. I was a Ross person. Yes. I mean, like we had glow in the dark sticks and all of it. And so I found my first place trophy and I'm like, can I put this somewhere? Like on, and it's like falling apart. It's like, you know, $2. Oh, yeah. no, that's I was like, this go. is first place. And Martha's like, that's, he's like, you need to let it go. I was like, like never, it. never not going to let it go. Tuckered Out is hosted by me, Ami Tucker. This episode is produced by Genie Media with Genie Saraswathi, Ashley Tuff, Micah Sweetman, Hans Andres, and Laura Radescu. You can follow me, at Tuckered Out Podcast on Instagram. And please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts.